This is Metastasis. I'm your host, Eddie Jackson. In this special episode, our senior producer, Yemar Oryasun, sat down with linguistic anthropologist, Dr. Beth Simmel, to talk about how different technological tools are used in biomedicine. In her own work, Dr. Simmel studies how data-driven diagnostic techniques are used to screen for stages of mental health. She explained that psychiatrists try to use speech to predict, for instance, a manic episode. Psychiatrists wanted to extract signals from what's known as paralinguistic components of speech, like pitch, energy, rate of articulation, and breathiness. The engineers would then analyze these kinds of sounds as signals to find connections between the physical properties of speech sounds and changes in the brain that would happen in someone with a mental illness. The only catch was that this technology didn't work. Today, we're asking a couple of different questions. How do we know what kinds of information are useful? When can a useful signal cut through noise? How do we recognize the noise? So what does it mean to suggest or imply that a machine or a computer is listening? Is machine listening a metaphor? Is it an analogy? And moreover, what does the gendering of technology mean for humans? I had had these two what felt like somewhat competing interests in kind of like the state of psychiatry and psychology as a science. Ostensibly, it's a, a medical field, and yet it seems to revolve around what we might call like low-tech kind of tools, like a lot of pen and paper-based inventories, um, and just the fact alone, too, that the main mechanism for doing mental health care is conversation and speech. Um, And so I was interested both in the kind of politics of what it means to call something biomedicine when it is kind of dealing with these objects that don't really have like a stably pinned down biomedical existence, like they haven't been kind of pushed through that grid. And at the same time, just from from a language and interpretation standpoint, what is it like for mental health care workers? What is it like for people who are, who are from a practitioner standpoint to come to understand and come to, I guess, really feel like they are experts in something that is so, you know, obviously the stakes are very high, especially in a place like um, the United States where the mental health care system is so tied up with insurance and also with prisons and just because of the way that social services in the U.S. are kind of wrapped up with the prison industrial complex. And so I initially started out looking more at the practitioner side and learning a little bit more about kind of what was going on in psychiatric research, mental health care research in what, at the time when I happened to be doing my um PhD, which was a time of, of great change, led me into this world where mental health care people are working with um, engineers to really radically kind of like totally change the way that they ask questions and also the technologies that they that they typically use. Um, I happened to find this strange corner of research on vocal biomarkers, which united together my interest in the, you know, the language side and then in the, the, the science side.
I know when the, my aha moment was, but I did not come to, Rice did not start my PhD program with that idea. I actually got it during preliminary research for a different idea. Um, after being really inspired and really sort of interested in some medical student movements in the U.S., um, White Coats for Black Lives and similar movements where medical students were saying medicine is racist, um, but also medical education is racist. And also we're being taught how to use race inappropriately in medicine. And also medicine is built on racism and like all of these things. And so there are die-ins and um, also like um, racism as a public health issue and thus as a medical issue. That movement grew sort of in tandem with Black Lives Matter movement in the sense that it was sort of started by people with the same interest and sort of broke up off in its own ways and says, like, this is going to be our corner of that. And so that's what I started graduate school trying to do. started off in D.C. and witnessed it, and D.C. is kind of an interesting place because there's something about being sort of close to legislation and being able to advocate, like, literally at the president's doorstep that's a little bit different about any sort of social movement, and so I went and talked to students there because they just have, like, a a little bit of a different perspective than students really anywhere else. But when I asked students what was of interest to them, what was like the most pressing issue for them right now, and specifically um, where in medical school they felt they weren't getting the right education, or they weren't getting enough education about race or racism or black people, whatever their sort of uh, political issue was, and students were coming from all kinds of different areas. And it so happened that white students, black students, Latino students, many of them said, you know, we don't get a good education in dermatology. If you open up a dermatology textbook, all you see is white skin. And that was like my moment. That was where I said, you know what? This is the project that I need to do. I need to figure out why it is that dermatology of sort of any field has non-diverse textbooks. And what I've started to like piece together since then is that like maybe all textbooks actually feature mostly white people, but on dermatology, people can see because it's not a picture of a sort of internal organ that you can't really, like, that's not how we judge race. What you just said is super, God, I just want to talk about that forever, but I think what's so, what's so great about the project and so fascinating, but also so important is just how it really gets at how much the skin is involved in a kind of like racial imaginary as being like the start and end point of race. But then at the same time, as you just pointed out, it's like clearly there's so many other things are race and racialize and intersect with these this, these categories that we call that we call race and race in the context of the people I study it's such a it's such a weird floating variable it was really not talked about in my field work at all it came up in very strange ways and it came up in ways that you wouldn't maybe the people working on it wouldn't even necessarily call it race um, so these technologies or these you know projects that people are doing where they're trying to detect they're saying we can we come up with an algorithm or whatever that can detect um, COVID by analyzing people's coughs. Um, 
But when you look into the patents that are associated with these technologies, they will have like kind of nested or coupled within them things like, okay, well, we are um, controlling for gender and country of origin and race. But what that means is that they're treating those as like, these are our, you know, our algorithm will detect those things too and hold them in abeyance and just consider COVID for instance. So a weird kind of byproduct ends up being like replicating the notion that things like country of origin or gender or race are like biological things and they exist through like the voice that can map onto and therefore like reifies and affirms the biological existence of all these other things. And it's not ever something that somebody will come out and say that this is what we're trying to do or this is like what, you know, our technologies are designed to identify, but there's something about, there's something in that act of saying, well, we can oftentimes technologies, these technologies as a kind of throwaway will be like, well, we detect gender, the, the, the gender of a speaker. When you really look at it, that's not, that's not the case at all. There's no such thing as a, a voice. It's just like a bundle of, of sounds. It doesn't have any gender to it. And voices change um, over time. They're not consistent. They're pliable. They change as we grow and our um, vocal cords take shape and you know degrade or whatever. This is interesting because you're talking about sound, um, which is sort of a product of the body. And I'm talking about skin, which is on on the body um and i think what's really interesting in my case is that when people try to like look at race in isolation from some kind of like body part they also make those mistakes but we don't like assume that those mistakes can be made because we are so sure that we know what race is and that skin color does tell us what race is um and in our interview with dr marina who we're gonna have on for another episode she works in new orleans and i don't know if you know the demographics of new orleans but in short there are a lot of light-skinned black people especially in new orleans and when she goes and she goes to a dermatology conference and she shows someone a picture of sort of an isolated body part that's not a person's whole face or a person's whole it's just a skin tag on an arm, right? And she says, you know, an, an African-American patient came in, someone will stop her and be like, but that's not a black patient. And she's just like, yeah, they, they identify as black. But when you see the body in isolation and you see light skin, you can be so sure that you're looking at a white person that you can still get race wrong. Even if, if you had seen the whole body, you would have gotten race right. Um, which just like, I think shows how Continuous, all of these like categorizations are, but it's like it. I think it's similar to sound in that in isolation, people are so sure that they're hearing someone black talk, or they're hearing someone white talk, or they're hearing a man or a woman talk, or, or whatever. You know, they're so sure um, that they can get it wrong, but they would have gotten it wrong if it were a real person or a person in full, because those things aren't actually real and we're also like enculturated to speak certain ways um and there's like a gay accent or you know what i mean and like part of it is adopted and part of it is not and so like it's just like very other than like maybe an albino person people think i can race people for the most part mm -hmm. and that's just like really strange <laughs> yeah yeah the people i study and maybe just in this kind of weird world of automated voice analysis or machine listening as it sometimes is called it's sort of like an argument made in the opposite direction where like as you like you were saying if you break the voice down 
and totally extract it and extrapolate it from the body, from its context of utterance. Like we shouldn't be thinking about context because that somehow is racist and sexist. So it's this weird kind of liberal, like colorblind or, you know, color not hearing of difference. Indeed, the way that they transform these spoken utterances, which are in a highly choreographed setup where people interviewing research subjects trying to get speech for a data set, by the time you get to an algorithm, it's not even a voice, it's like code that's based on analysis of like a signal. And so it's so abstracted from any kind of context. And indeed, they're trying to get at these like signals in the brain that we can, that are reverse engineered from sound to tell us something about what mental illness is like and how it manifests. But like, what then happens nevertheless is that they're still, it's very productive. The way that Ruha Benjamin talks about racism and sexism, transphobia, et cetera, being productive. Like these things like produce and continually press things like race and gender and also ability into association with biological things. So even while they're being contested as like, no, no, that's, you know, we're just dealing with the brain. Um, we're dealing with uh, sound in its, you know, the level of, of physics in its purest form. Still, nevertheless, it's always tangled up in the experimental setups that produce the data sets or in the marketing or advertising or even just in terms of like who even are the research subjects because most of the research subjects at least that I experienced were were white. Metastasis is a part of the Digital Oncology Initiative and Medical Futures Lab at Rice University. It is produced by Bilal Rahman, Eddie Jackson, Julianne B., and Yemar Oyarzun, with executive producer Daniel Rizvi, and directed by me, Lan Lee. This episode was hosted by Eddie Jackson and Yemar Oyarzun, with story editing help from Julianne B., Daniel Rizvi, and Lan Lee. Our episodes are edited by Isil Rizvi and Lan Lee, and our music is by Moyes. Special thanks to Dr. Beth Semmel for talking to us in this episode. You can learn more about Dr. Semmel's work through the Anthropology Department 